You're listening to the podcast series for Women Vision SC 2020, a production of South Carolina Public Radio. I'm Linda O'Brien. We'll hear interviews from some remarkable women from across the state. They were nominated by our listeners. Join us now with one of the 11 Women of Vision SC. This week, we talk with Lou Kennedy, who has led Nephron Pharmaceuticals since 2007. She is the president and CEO of the global company, which is based in West Columbia. Welcome, Lou Kennedy. In a recent Columbia Magazine article, you said you have the Southern accent, but you're wired like a New Yorker. Is that still the case? <laughs> That's very much the case. <laughs> and I don't know, maybe a speedier destination I need to, to find, since I think I'm going faster, not slower. Faster than New York. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you joined Nephron Pharmaceuticals in 2001 and became president and CEO in 2007. It's still rare for women to be the CEO of a major company. How did this happen? Well, I started out by building the sales force and we started expanding like exponentially very quickly. And by 2007, we were in all classes of trade. So that means we were not only calling on hospitals, but also big box retailers, physicians' offices, mm -hmm. and so forth. So my husband said, you've learned so much about this business, and I am really had the desire to slow down a little bit. And he said, would you think about taking over as CEO, and we'll make this a woman-owned business, and Im involve his daughters as well? And I said, sure, I'm happy to do it. Never met a challenge I didn't like. So that's how it happened. Just easily. And how was the transition from marketing <laughs> to CEO? It was um, interesting because you, you know, you're always marketing and that's the plan for all of us that are running companies. But what I would say is I really was well versed and I guess wired like a sales and marketing gal, but I needed to learn the science behind what we do. So it was a very steep learning curve. Uh, I jumped right in. You know, at that time I knew the word assay and I knew it was a test, but I needed to know what were what were we testing for in our labs for assay or osmolarity or other things, and I had to learn that really quickly. And you moved the company. It used to be based in Orlando, Florida. You moved to West Columbia. Why did you do that? Well, the plan was that we bought the property and the plan was to expand in Orlando. And I was struggling with a $90 million expansion in the time just trying to work with the permitting office there. So I thought of the old days when I had friends in economic development here and I thought, I wonder if that would be a good thing for South Carolina um, to bring jobs and, and help the economy. My parents, you know, are living here. And so I made a couple of phone calls and uh, buddies in economic development said, now, Lou, if you're kicking tires to stir it up in Florida, we won't help you. But if you're serious, we will. And I said, no, I, I'd like to know. And Commerce here had folks in our building within two days. And that was in August. We made our announcement that our expansion would indeed incur in West Columbia by October. So it was a quick, quick process. We were in Nikki Haley's cabinet at the time, and she and Bobby Hitt made swift efforts to try and, you know, convince us this was a good thing to do. And we agreed and announced that October. And how many jobs did that bring? Well, we promised over a 10-year period, I believe the number was 
you know, it was something odd, like 712 or something like that. And uh, we're well past that now. And we passed all our expectations, including level of investment in terms of dollars, as well as jobs. So we feel good. We've done what we were asked to do, um, and then some. One of the issues in South Carolina is workforce development and actually finding employees in these highly skilled jobs, such as those who would work for your company. Has that been a problem? Well, I would suggest if we want to solve our workforce development needs, one of the first things we need to do is ask my colleagues, other business owners, to get involved in the schools. The schools are where our workforce development training begins, and I don't think middle school is too early to start. Well, how is a child to know what a microbiologist does if we don't bring those opportunities and ideas to the classroom? So I encourage and have probably one to three field trips a week of every age from the very young all the way through the pharma law classes at the university because I need for them to see first that we have job opportunities or what might they want to take in school to work toward that goal. So we're very involved in schools, many of the school systems all around the Midlands, and anytime I get an opportunity to speak in the schools, particularly to the faculty, and talk about curriculum, I'm always up for that. And how does it, uh, what do the kids say? Are they excited about it when they see it? They are, they are, they mostly enjoy the robotics. Uh, I also decided when we uh, designed our building that the whole place should be visible through glass. I did that to inspire future um, workforce. So we're only the fourth facility in the world that has a complete 100% viewing corridor. And I did that because OSHA only allows 11 and up on the factory floor, so I can have four-year-olds if I want. And what I, my hope was that I put lab benches in even the labs up by the viewing windows so that we could make something bubble or turn blue and the kids would say, how do I get to do that and maybe want to become or be inspired to become a chemist? That's great. So they, they are seeing it for the first time there yes. and then taking it home. Yes, and the teachers talk to them about it before and after the field trip and discuss, you know, what do you, you know, they might think a robot is something that they see on TV with blinking lights and they finally can see the jump from a cute little robot on a TV show to the robotic automated equipment that we use. But the robots are creating their own jobs, so it isn't just that they are, robots are taking other people's jobs. Their right. people have to maintain the robots. That's correct, and so we've changed our needs in workforce development to, instead of human hands, for example, what can those humans do with the human machine interface panels that talk to the robotics? So how do they work with the machines to either troubleshoot or to program them to do something differently. So it's a different set of skills than just human hands working. And what would you recommend for a high school or college student or technical school student? What kinds of coursework for this very work? Well, uh, what I've learned in, the, in recent years, there are these very cool Lego robotics courses that are being taught as early as elementary school all around the state. And that's, you know, the beginning, I think, of igniting maybe that, that part of the brain. But as you move through or matriculate through the schools, you have robotics classes, you have mechatronics classes, you have entry-level electrical work. And we have uh, an apprentice program for sterile pharmacy technicians sanctioned by the Department of Labor and working with Midlands Tech and the university. And we do that at no cost to the student, no cost. And we are now about to add a mechatronics, which really touches on 
lots of things that do with machine operation. And then the, next, the third pilot program that we want to move into is chemistry. So we've, we're trying to, and we know that not all students need a four or six year degree or beyond. Many students are great right out of high school or a two year degree, and we need to work with all those angles to get the best workforce of the future. Tell us about the company and the types of pharmaceuticals you're making. Yes, for 22 years we've made generic respiratory medications for people who have asthma or emphysema. So if you imagine a child might take albuterol with a nebulizer, a mist that they breathe. And then two years ago, we added a new division of our company, and that is to make sterile injectable products for any hospital or surgery center who have drug shortage needs. So we've been in a real crisis mode in recent years, and we have been making those drug shortage products like sodium bicarbonate, dextrose, even morphine we've had on shortage. So we found that hospitals were deferring uh, hospitalizations or surgeries because they couldn't get all the products they need. But my most exciting product that I love talking about is we have worked with several different anesthesiologists around the country to uh, identify what products we could make that are opioid free so that we can be a part of the solution to this opioid crisis. So how do we treat patients with pain so that they don't get addicted and somehow end up in many ways in fatality issues. So we're proud of that fact. We, we make uh, several products that are opioid free. So these are op opioid free, but they help in pain management. Yes, yes. Things like ketamine, ketorolac, bupivacaine, ropivacaine, these are all good products. Even something as old as lidocaine that has now come back into favor more. Why, why don't we hear more about that? We're, this nation is in a crisis with opioids. Well, I have a day job and I'm very busy <laughs> with the operation of our company. I wish I could talk about it every day because it's so very important. How does the whole industry restore trust among the public because of what's happened with opioids in particular? Well, you know, I'd say that we had some bad actors. We really had some physicians that maybe made it a you know, you heard about back in the day in Florida, the pill mills or too many pain clinics, one on every corner. And we had to get control of that because we found out that there between 1999 and 2017, there were 4,000 deaths attributed to opioid problems. And so when you, you have numbers like that, you really have to take a closer look. And we found, as I said, I visited with a lot of anesthesiologists who have made this their project and mission to do do what is right. And then you have to look at the big pharma companies that are in the news that really got too excited about a profit and maybe less thinking about the well-being of the patients they serve. And it's, it's just, it's unfortunate. Do you have any thought about taking Nephron public? No. <laughs> That's fast. <laughs> no, is, is the fast answer because uh, I work with my husband and we're both only children and he's as demanding as I am. So to have to answer Wall Street seems painful to me. Speaking of um, being an only child and your growing up days, you grew up in this community. Do you have one memory that might have been a turning point that captivated you to move into this type of work and this type of leadership? I would say not one moment, but a couple of things. So 
You know my name is Lou. My parents wanted a boy. I had a blue nursery. Maybe they knew I'd end up in a men's, man's world. <laughs> you know, that, that maybe was foreshadowing. And then uh, I had a professor and also advisor at USC. <laughs> I remember dreaming that she had been to Atlanta with this very hip briefcase and worked in PR and she had achieved things that some other women couldn't. And I thought, well, I wish I could be this sophisticated and professional. And she would counsel me about what classes to take and say, uh, Lou, you can do anything you want to do. Just put your mind to it. And I'm forever grateful for her encouragement and, um, and what she did in the classroom and also in our, in our sessions for picking classes and so forth. So would you say she was the professor or teacher who, who influenced you the most? Well, we had some awesome, awesome teachers in my Lexington School District 1 and even in Lexington 5 that started me. I, I think as much as I didn't realize it, I look back on my career and, and so many of the teachers had such a great influence, including my mother, the first teacher in my life. Your mother, and how did she? How did she influence you? What What was it about her? She's very. Let me say this the nice way: motivational, <laughs> and she expected me to do the right thing in all things. And I think her expectations, while she might have might not have meant it, I probably made myself into a perfectionist. And that drive that she pushed a little, and I push a lot, has helped me. What would your advice be for a young person who's thinking about becoming? Uh, a leader of some sort? Don't think anything about a little work. Always think about a lot of work. Everything you do, you have to push, and you have to push hard and, and put your whole self into it. And I believe when you do that, if you have your mind in the right place to achieve the goals that you want, and you push as hard as you can, you're unstoppable. I, there's no reason you can't do whatever you want. And I try my best every day to mentor and show young women, don't be pigeonholed into what we thought were traditional roles. Do anything you want and do it well just by trying hard and working hard. And, and a, a poor work ethic never achieves anything great. But one of the, the issues, the very real issues that many women face is work-life balance because there are pulls on both sides, family life and work life. How do you balance all of that? Okay, I'm not a great example of balance, but what I did do is my daughter works in our company, my son-in-law works in our company, my husband works in our company, <laughs> so the family and the work sort of blend, so that helps. Uh, but. I mean, you know, I'm not embarrassed to say that I showed my daughter, and I was a single mom for a long time. I mean, I still consider myself a single mom, but I married a great guy. And I've shown her all along, it's okay to be a mother and work hard. And I want her to know that it's also okay to be a breadwinner. And if you find a great spouse or significant other or guy, whatever you want to label that, good for you, but don't be expected that that's the only way to get through life. You gotta, you gotta do it for yourself first. But why aren't there more women who are CEOs? Well, I mean, we have, uh, you know, we have the opportunity to encourage the men around us to think about hiring us. We certainly need to go and put ourselves up for positions and not wait to be tapped on the shoulder. There's, you know, we have to be our own best advocates. That's number one. But I also think that we're a little behind in the Southeast. I see bigger st strides being made perhaps in the Northeast and other parts of our country where it's a little more okay for women to do what I do. And I also see, you know, 
five, ten years ago, every meeting I was surrounded by all men. Now I see more women in the boardroom and in, in our meeting space, and I try to make a point to celebrate that with whomever I'm around, like, wow, how great to have a couple extra women in the room. So I think it's up to those of us in these positions to stick together and cheer for it, if you will. We've got to make this just the norm, not just a, a good thing. How would you define your overriding life vision? This is a program about women and vision. Well, I um, turned 50 a couple years back, and since that big birthday milestone, I really have focused on what could I do, not only in job goal, but also in the community and for other young ladies and children who maybe don't have as many opportunities as I had. So I've I'm trying to make a difference. I, I'm way too involved in probably way too many things, but it's, it's good to give back, and it's especially good to give back in your hometown. So I'm, I'm trying to make uh, leave a legacy of some little tiny, a tiny bit. And you and your husband have donated to the university for the pharmacy innovation. What do you hope to achieve with well, this Well, our school? goal in that uh, donation was to show that pharmacists can do a lot of things. That degree is amazing. It's particularly amazing at the University of South Carolina and the pharmacy schools in this state and what they're doing. But we wanted them to know that that's a wonderful broad education that could be used in a variety of different ways. And the pharmacy school of the past perhaps focused mostly on retail pharmacy work and clinical pharmacy work directly in the hospital. We want to show that you could work for a pharma company. You could work in formulation, regulatory, compliance. There's so many things that that education is well suited. And we want to uh, celebrate that at the pharmacy school, and we've worked really hard on that program. Is there anything coming down the line that we should be aware of in terms of research that looks very exciting to you? Well, you know, I don't do um, disease curing research, but we do research and development within our space. So we have developed and patented an idea that would help us alter the form of delivery for these respiratory medications to make them affordable to everyone and offer a great breathing treatment to every demographic, not just the private pay person or the person wealthy enough to afford these types of drugs. Because that is one of the issues. And mm -hmm. what you're doing with generics is yes. a big help, but there are many people we, who there face There are so huge... many drugs that are developed, have been developed in one format and are very expensive. And if we can move them into the type of drug delivery system that our drugs are um, being utilized today, then we can drive them into a real affordable zone for, for all the demographics. And that's, that's one of the things we're working on. You are a leader. Um, what do you think makes you a good leader? What are the qualities? Well, if you would visit me at the office, you'd see me working alongside everybody in that plant. Now, some say that's uh, not a good way to lead. It's just the way that I do it and the way that I know. So you could find me on any given Saturday packing um, customers' products to put into the UPS truck. I like just working together with everybody there, and I feel like we are a team. It's not about employer-employee. We work together on a team. I've always been like that. My father was that type of leader. Maybe he mentored me that way. So I just I think hard work needs to be modeled. And finally, in 2020, we marked the 100th anniversary of women's right to vote. 
in your words, why is it important for women and men to vote? Well, first of all, you have to vote your conscience and have to vote for what you think will make this a better place. And my theory has always been, if you don't vote, how can you complain? You have to try to push forward the ideas that you think are the right thing. And I've been very involved now that I'm back in South Carolina and watching what our local politicians are doing. And if they're doing a great job, we should vote for them. And if they're not, we shouldn't. And we should look for a better alternative. Thank you very much, Lou Kennedy. Thank you. You've been listening to Women Vision SC, a podcast production of South Carolina Public Radio. You can find video stories and other resources on KnowItAll and SCETV.org. The producer of Women Vision SC for South Carolina Public Radio and the podcast series is A.T. Shire. William Richardson is the producer-director of the television series. Zhao Yu is associate producer and Becca Turner is production assistant. Tyora Moody is web manager. Bobby Kennedy is director of special projects. For SCETV and South Carolina Public Radio, I'm Linda O'Brien. Thanks for joining us.